Thank you very much, Matthew. Well, good morning, and welcome to the Family Bible Hour. It was a real blessing to have Jack and May Carell with us last Lord's Day and to hear Jack's uplifting message on hope. If you've missed his message, I encourage you to listen to it on sermon audio. It's always one that we need to hear, especially in these trying times. This morning, I would like to speak on the second part of the 12th chapter of Exodus, beginning with verse 29 and going right through to the end of this chapter to verse 51. And thank you, Matthew, for reading it through for us already. So if you still have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 51. But before we begin the message, let's first turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank Thee once again for the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on Calvary's cross. Were it not for that, we would not be here this morning thanking and praising thee. And we would be lost and headed for a Christless eternity. But Lord, we thank thee that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so, Father, as we study this precious book of Exodus and the suffering of thy people, Israel, we pray that the Spirit of God will be pleased to give us understanding of the text before us this morning. For we always ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. If you recall, two weeks ago, we left Moses and Aaron being instructed by the Lord concerning the institution of the Passover. Previously, they had been in Pharaoh's court delivering to him the warning of the tenth and the final plague to be unleashed if he did not let Israel go. And after a heated discussion ensued between Moses and Pharaoh, and the defiant refusal to let Israel go, Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh's court in a great anger. Immediately afterwards, the Lord instructs Moses and Aaron concerning the institution of the Passover and the beginning of a new calendar. They would both have a new calendar and a new beginning. This was to be the first month, verse uh, 2, and the beginning of months. It would be called the month of Nisan, which corresponded to our mid-March, early April. And on the 10th of that month, each household was to select an unblemished lamb, a male, in his first year, to be slain four days later on the 14th of that month, on the 14th of Nisan. And the blood of the lamb was to be sprinkled with hyssop branches on the two side doorposts as well as on the top lintel of the door. 
so that the destroying angel would pass over their home and spare their firstborn. The lamb was to be roasted and fully eaten by morning. Nothing was to be left over. And with the lamb, they were to eat unleavened bread as a reminder that they had to leave in haste and bitter herbs as a reminder of their suffering in Egypt. And while they ate the Passover, they were to be dressed fully, ready for a hasty exit. Their loins were to be girded, shoes on their feet, and a staff in their hand. They were also informed that following the Passover itself, the next seven days would be called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And during those seven days, there was to be found no leaven in their houses. And in the future, when their children would ask them, what is the meaning of this feast? They would tell them, verse 27, that it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. Having thus informed all the elders of Israel, verse 21, concerning the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we are told in verse 28 that the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. This then brings us to our text for this morning's message, Exodus 12, verses 29 to 51. And so we read in verse 29, And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Please notice a few important things in this opening verse. At midnight, the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, just as he said he would. But one might ask, did the Lord physically and personally himself kill all the firstborn of Egypt? Or was it rather a destroying angel who did the killing? We get the answer from verse 23 of that same chapter. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood on the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you. The scriptures tell us that it was the destroyer who would take the lives of all the firstborn and not the Lord himself personally. The Lord would instead prevent the destroyer from taking any firstborn under the protection of the blood. Now, who was this destroyer, this angel of death? Was he a fallen angel whom the Lord used in such cases? Or was he a holy angel who was used to carry out the Lord's judgments and vengeance. For this destroyer was used many times throughout the history of the Bible for these unpleasant tasks. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 15 to 16, 
When King David sinned against the Lord in numbering the people of Israel, God sent the destroyer as per David's choice. Verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning, even to the time appointed, and there died of the people from Dan, even to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough. Stay thy hand. Then we see again in Second Kings 19.35 another example of this angel destroying. This time, the enemies of King Hezekiah who was under siege by the Assyrian army. Verse 35, And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians one hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. A hundred and eighty-five thousand men had been slain in one night by this angel. Then in Acts 12, verse 23, when Herod sat on his throne and was hailed by the people as a god and failed to give God the glory, the scriptures say that he was immediately smitten by the angel of the Lord and that he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. And finally, one more example. Psalm 78, verse 49, talking about the destruction of Egypt. He, that is the Lord, cast upon them, the Egyptians, the fierceness of his anger, wrath, and indignation, and trouble by sending evil spirits or evil angels among them. So it is possible that in many of these cases, it was evil angels that did the killing. And secondly, one might ask of verse 29, did the word firstborn in this passage include both male and female or just males? Although the word firstborn can sometimes refer to females, as in the case of Lot's eldest daughter, who was identified as his firstborn in Genesis 19, 31 to 34, it is always used elsewhere in the Old Testament as referring to the male firstborn. Thus, it was most certain that only the males, both of man and beast, were taken in this case. This would seem to be symbolically a just revenge for all the males that were slaughtered by the Pharaoh who ruled Egypt in Exodus 1.22 and decreed the death of all the male Hebrew children, males, who were to be drowned. And thirdly, we should perhaps point out that, ver that everyone, everyone who applied the blood to the doorposts of their home would have been spared. And on the other side of the token, any Hebrew who may have ignored the blood, would have also been taken that night. This plague spread very quickly, for we are told in verse 30, 
that Pharaoh rose up during the night and all his servants with him, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. It is quite logical to assume that the plague would have begun with the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son, then spreading to the rest of Egypt. There was great wailing and crying heard throughout the night as the angel of death passed through the streets, destroying all of Egypt's firstborn. Meanwhile, the children of Israel huddled quietly in their homes, eating the Passover, their hearts beating rapidly because of the fear and the dread of this final plague. They waited to see what morning would bring. Then, in the midst of this horrifying scene, the Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron during the night, verse 31, and tells them what he ought to have told them a long time ago. Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as ye have said. Verse 32. Also take your flocks and your herds as ye have said and be gone. And bless me also. Please notice two things here. First, Pharaoh does not want, does not wait for morning to come. But summons Moses and Aaron during the night when the plague is still spreading rapidly. The cries in the night cannot allow him to sleep nor to wait till morning. Urgency of action is needed. Secondly, for the first time, Pharaoh is afraid. Dread fills his soul. All anger and pride seems to have vanished, at least momentarily. He now fears for his own life, for he too is the firstborn, since he is Pharaoh of Egypt. And so he tells Moses in verse 32, and bless me also. Pray for me, Moses, so that when you are gone, I might be spared, for your God will listen to you. It is only when one's life is at stake that reason seems to return. Such was the case for Pharaoh. There is not a single word to describe Pharaoh's grief or loss or sorrow that night other than he feared for his life. Nothing except this request and bless me also. When a soul is faced with the holiness and justice of the Almighty God, nothing else seems to matter except mercy and the desire to be spared from God's wrath. And oh, how we need to proclaim this truth today, that the wrath of God must be averted at all costs. Sin has destroyed this human race. And without God, there is no hope. Our churches today are in rebellion against the word of God. The Bible is treated carelessly and flippantly. 
the multiplicity of Bible versions and perversions have completely removed God's authority from our pulpits. Scholarship has replaced the Holy Spirit as the determiner of truth. Women preachers and women pastors, said John MacArthur, are the most obvious evidence of churches rebelling against the Bible today. Our nation has been testing God's patience far too long with our total disregard for his commandments. Thou shalt not kill, we abort babies. Thou shalt not steal, we cheat our fellow man of his wages and his reputation. Thou shalt not lie, we promise but we don't deliver. We twist the facts to suit our fancies. Thou shalt not commit adultery. We change our spouses almost as often as we change our dirty underwear. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, but we have become so materially minded that the average household debt is now teetering on the brink of financial collapse. Honor thy father and thy mother. What? What does that even mean? And yet, when death knocks on our door, it will be far too late to change our tune and our attitude towards the things of God. And so the children of Israel begin their hasty exodus, verse 34, during the early morning amidst the weeping and wailing as children are suddenly taken in the night. The scriptures say in verse 35, And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians." Then the remainder of the chapter can be subdivided into two portions. The first portion is verse 37 to 41, in which we now trace the journey which the children of Israel took. They left Ramesses and headed for Sukkot, a place that is difficult to locate accurately today. But we can nevertheless reasonably assume that it lay approximately 15 miles east of Ramesses. For 15 miles is approximately the maximum distance which the children of Israel could have covered traveling nonstop that first day. The scriptures tell us that there were about 600,000 men on foot beside children. This number does not include women. And if we were to assume equal number of women and two children per household, which would be a low estimate, we would have a much larger number, perhaps as high as two and a half million souls. Then in verse 38, we are told that a mixed multitude went up with them and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. Now, who was this? mixed multitude, we might ask. Don't forget, 
that Egypt was now a land that was completely devastated by plagues. It was now almost a barren land. Death lay everywhere. There were, we might suppose, many non-Hebrews who chose to leave their God-forsaken land with the children of Israel, hoping to find something better than what they left behind. But unfortunately, this mixed multitude would eventually become an added burden to the called-out ones. When 40 years would have to be spent wandering in the desert, some of them would have caused many a problem. We also read in verses 40 to 41 that the sojourning of the children of Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. 430 years from the time that Jacob arrived in Egypt with his family to the time that the children of Israel left. Now remember that in Genesis 15, 13, God told Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for four hundred years. Now, many skeptics have pointed to a supposed contradiction in years, but they fail to take into account that for 17 years, while Jacob was still alive, the Hebrews were treated kindly, and it could have been very likely that the new king, who knew not Joseph, arose some 13 years after Jacob's death, and therefore began to enslave the children of Israel. So when God told Abraham that it would be exactly 400 years of affliction, it was exactly 400 years of affliction. Then we come to the next and last portion of this chapter, verses 42 to 51, which deals with more details and instructions concerning the Passover. First, it was to be observed because it symbolized their deliverance from bondage in the land of Egypt. It was to be observed by all generations, verse 42. Secondly, no stranger was ever to eat it, for how shall it be of importance to him who was not delivered from slavery in Egypt? Thirdly, Every Hebrew servant that was bought for money was to be circumcised, and then he would be able to eat the Passover. Fourthly, the Paschal lamb and Passover by connotation must be eaten in one house, and none of it was to be taken outside of that house. Furthermore, they were instructed to not break a single bone of the Passover lamb, verse 46. This was to be observed by all of Israel. There were no exceptions. And the fifth and final point to that ordinance is that if a stranger stays with a Hebrew family, 
and wishes to eat the Passover, then he must first be circumcised and all the males in his family. For no uncircumcised person was to eat the Passover. There was one law and the same law, both to the homeborn and to the stranger that sojourns or lives with the Jews. Verse 50 tells us that all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. All were eager to obey the Lord in the early stages of their newfound freedom. But, as we shall see, all of that would later change very quickly. So, with that, we come to the end of our sermon for this morning. But as always, before I step down from this platform, I must ask you some very personal questions. Where are you headed for when this life is over? Is it to heaven and all of its glory? Or is it to hell and all of its torment? No one talks about hell anymore today. It's a too disagreeable topic. In fact, it might even keep some people awake at night. And yet we must talk about it. We must warn our fellow man of this terrible place. We must warn them that unless they turn from their sins and trust Jesus Christ only as their Savior and Lord, they will go there assuredly. And yet God does not want anyone to perish. He has done everything possible to make it so easy to get saved. He has placed the entire sins of the whole world upon his only begotten Son and sent him to the cross of Calvary so that we might be set free, if only, if only we would by faith believe on him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 Let's pray. Father, again, we thank thee for this precious book. We thank thee that it is a love letter written to thy people. For thy heart is that thy would have none to perish. But because of thy grace, thy holiness, thou cannot interfere with personal decisions. Thou hast given us all free will, free choice. And for those that choose to reject Christ as Savior and choose some other way, unfortunately have made the wrong decision and are headed to a Christless eternity. And so, Father, we pray that there be none amongst us who has not fully and thoroughly trusted Christ as Savior. And if perchance there be even but one, may today be the day of their salvation. For we ask it always in our Savior's name and for his glory. Amen.